It's Thursday, June 6th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Homelessness is a problem all across the country, but the headlines out of California are getting out of control, and L.A. County seems to be having an especially bad time. Homelessness has jumped 12% despite millions of dollars being poured in to help limit the problem. And in the meantime, there is constant news of rats, fleas, and feces due to homeless encampments. Benjamin Oreskes, reporter for the LA Times, joins us to break down the latest numbers. Next, 2019 already has the highest number of migrant arrests than any other full year in the past decade. In May alone, there were over 144,000 migrants taken into custody. Steph Kite, reporter for Axios, joins us for the continued border surge. Finally, the sport of boxing was turned on its head this past weekend as Andy Ruiz Jr. became the first Mexican heavyweight champion of the world. But what really makes the story so great is how much of a humble everyman Ruiz is. And then there is his flabby body, which is not what a typical champion looks like. Jason Gay, sports columnist at the Wall Street Journal, joins us for Andy Ruiz Jr., the humble heavyweight. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. But this system is the safety net of last resort. It's responding to multiple crises in housing unaffordability, in criminal justice, foster care, and vast inequality in wealth and income. Our annual count reported more people experiencing homelessness this year than last year. Joining us now is Benjamin Oreskes, reporter for the LA Times. The country is experiencing a real problem with homelessness. There's one place in particular that it's just being highlighted so much in California, more specifically in Los Angeles. There was just a new count of the homeless people in L.A. County. It has jumped up 12 percent, even more in some other pockets of of the county. It's leading to all sorts of problems. There's headlines all over the place saying City Hall is being infested with rats. There's typhus and typhoid fever problems, just the filth and feces. Tell us a little bit about the latest count. The county every year to comply with federal government does a three-day point-in-time count. They send out 8,000 volunteers in January over three days to get a snapshot of what the city and county's homeless population looks like. These numbers are used and are not just political footballs. They are very important in deciding how funding gets distributed. And this number, which is not an exact number, we should always be careful when using it. It's an extrapolation. There's a statistical analysis that is done, a demographic study, found that there had been a 12% increase since 2011. The number has exploded from about 39,000 to this year we saw around 59,000. So it is the story of the moment in LA and then in California as well, where counties across the state have been reporting increases in the double digit percent up in the Bay Area. San Francisco saw a 17% increase, I believe. Alameda County, where Oakland is, I think saw a 43% spike. These numbers are, are very large and people are angry about it and it's taking up a lot of the political oxygen. The state is allotting billions of dollars to help combat this problem. I know all the individual cities and counties, the same, they're doing the same, trying to throw money at the issue. That largely surrounds housing, uh, more affordable housing to help put these people in so we can get them off of the streets. 
Yeah, and I mean, I would say it actually also goes beyond housing. In L.A. County, we've had several bond measures and sales tax increases that have been tied to outreach. And there are some bright spots in these numbers where the county and public officials point to this housed around 20,000 people last year. A huge achievement for them, a, a huge increase in that number. And they point to better organization, more outreach workers, more organization. But that number couldn't keep pace with the number of people falling into homelessness. And as you alluded to, city officials, county officials, state officials are all pointing to the affordable housing crisis. As rents go up, it's pushing more people into their cars and onto the streets and making this crisis something that's harder to solve. Every day last year, 133 homeless people had moved into permanent housing, but another 150 people became homeless. So it's not an amazing stat. Yeah, yeah, it's outpacing the number. Let's talk about the homeless population a little bit. About 75% of them are living outside, but there's been an increase in younger people, people aged 18 to 24 also. If I could just quickly talk about that unsheltered population, it's what you see on the streets every day. It's what angers people, and I think it's in real stark contrast to a place like New York City, where there is a larger homeless population, but most of them are in shelters, so it's not something you necessarily see. And I think that contributes to a lot of the anger, discontent that you see in the page of the LA Times or on television or as you down the street. This is something that every resident lives with. There's been a huge increase in the youth population. The population of sort of chronically homeless people, sort of meaning you've been on the street more than a year, has gone up. The county officials say that might also be tied to people entering into that category, people who had been on the streets and then suddenly had to hit this milestone and now are counted as part of that population. There were not a lot of bright spots in this besides city officials sort of pointing to the number of people they house. But again, I direct you to a quote that I think sums all this up from the head of the Homeless Services Organization in L.A. County, where he says, we're the safety net of last resort. He said, I can't fix poverty. I can't fix housing affordability. I can't fix the criminal justice system. Those are larger problems, and there needs to be public policy fixes for them. Back to the housing thing, and we're talking about Los Angeles County specifically, as you alluded to earlier, the numbers and there's increases going on all across the state. But in L.A. County, we need almost 517,000 more units of affordable rental housing to meet a demand. But these renters need to make 47 $7.50 per hour, which is more than triple the minimum wage to pay the median monthly rent of about $2,400. Housing costs are crazy in this area. What are officials trying to do to get that under control? We've seen a lot of efforts in Sacramento to address this issue in terms of how just communities in general are zoned. And then we've seen attempts at rental caps. We've seen attempts at fixing the way that evictions are done. Issues have failed in the legislature and not much progress has been made and the county is building more permanent supportive housing but not a lot of those units have come online and again I think that these numbers could get worse in the years to come as this county can't keep up with the number of people falling into homelessness because they can't afford to pay their rent. Benjamin, the last question I have has to do with sort of the optics of this whole thing. You know, I start off by talking about a lot of the headlines and, and sort of, you know, some of the nastier parts of it, you know, the, the feces, the rats, the rodent problems, there's fleas. Last year, there was a typhus problem in Skid Row where there was a lot of people uh, have these homeless encampments. How are they responding to that part of it? Our mayor has called this a humanitarian crisis. It is. And I think that the mayor and 
the legislature or the city council has done a lot in terms of public health outreach. You know, there's more of an, an increased effort. There will be more money in the budget for cleanups of encampments. But again, you know, when you have people living on the streets, these are the problems you run into. And if there are more of them, the problem will get worse. So it's it's something that people are very worried about. And it's something that's also angering lots of people. Benjamin Oreskes, reporter for the LA Times. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. We've seen now three straight months of over 100,000 immigrants attempting to cross the border. They don't really expect this to go down any longer because of various push and pull factors. So it really doesn't seem that this border crisis is swelling at all. Joining us now is Steph Kite, reporter for Axios. When we're talking about immigration, there's a lot of news swirling around immigration. There's the constant influx of migrants coming to the U.S. trying to seek asylum. We're waiting to see if tariffs are going to go through against Mexico for not handling the problem enough. But right now, the I mean, the Central American boom that's been coming in grew even larger in May, according to U.S. and Customs Border Protection statistics. They show that more than 144,000 migrants were taken into custody in May. That's a 32% jump from April. It's the largest one month total since President Trump took office and the highest monthly figure in 13 years. Tell us a little bit more about these numbers. Over the past several years, May is typically the peak month when it comes to border crossings because the weather is still relatively nice. And that just tends to encourage people, especially when they're traveling on foot and outside. And so we we were expecting big numbers for May. But what's different is when talking with immigration officials over the phone, they're concerned that the numbers might not actually come down, that we've seen now three straight months of over 100,000 immigrants attempting to cross the border. They don't really expect this to go down any longer because of various push and pull factors. The fact that there are families that are literally just being released once they're processed, found, arrested, processed, being released into the U.S. because there's nowhere to put them has been an encouraging factor for more migrants to come to the border. So it really doesn't seem that this border crisis is swelling at all. Talk a little bit about that, our inability to hold that many people. The acting Custom and Border Protection Commissioner, John Sanders, says we're in a full-blown emergency the system is broken and it really seems to be true. There's just not enough space or resources to handle all this stuff. One of the latest stories we saw was how Health and Human Services is cutting funding for the unaccompanied minors that are in our custody, cutting funds for education and recreation programs for them. That's all part because those programs are just running out of money. At this point, what we're seeing is that every stage of the immigration process, every stage that migrant children especially would be facing. There are huge backlogs and and the administration is just out of space. When children come across the border and are first arrested or turn themselves into Border Patrol, Border Patrol has to hold them for a few days just to process them. Those detention centers are overcrowded. There's no space. CBP Border Patrol has been moving migrants across the country to try to get them to places that are less crowded. Then once children are processed, then they're handed over to Health and Human Services. The Office of Refugee Resettlement is within Health and Human Services. And there they're taken care of and they're supposed to be placed with sponsors. But there also the shelters that would hold these kids are also overcrowded. Some reporting is saying that those shelters are operating at 97% capacity, which is 
is beyond the 90% that they would say is a red zone. So really at every stage, the government is just struggling to even have enough space to hold these people, which then, of course, is going to lead to humanitarian issues. It's going to lead to health issues. It's going to lead to various other repercussions of just having no space and no process to follow. Where are we with money to help fund these programs? I know the White House, the president, they've asked Congress for more money to help with you know this emergency funding that they need there. Any movement on that front? We, of course, have heard from DHS. They've requested more emergency funding to help deal with this situation. But it's Congress. Congress is slow, and they're particularly slow when it comes to immigration issues. And one of the big problems we're seeing is that Congress is just not really willing to act on these issues. They're not addressing bills that would actually address some of these issues we're seeing at the border because this has become such a political issue. So while I'm sure there are discussions about getting funding where it is needed and that might be more likely to happen now that we're seeing these kinds of numbers, the big picture is when it comes to a long-term solution to what's going on at the border, almost anyone you talk to would be very pessimistic about this happening. Most of these migrants coming over now are from Central America, Guatemala, Honduras, El Salvador. I think the highest concentration of numbers are people coming from Guatemala. There was just recent reports saying that Guatemala now is working with the United States to help reduce the flow of migrants, breaking up some of the caravans, subjecting families to DNA testing to make sure that they're not trying to game the system and, and get here with a couple of kids and then just get released into the United States. This seems like some of the first action that's being taken by some of these Central American countries yeah. to help with this. This really is one of the strongest moves we've seen so far from one of these Central American nations. And of course, President Trump has been very adamant that they should be doing something to fix this problem. He's threatened to pull aid from these countries, American federal aid that that goes into these countries to help them with the issues on the ground. Guatemala, according to the reporting, is potentially renegotiating some of their open border agreements with surrounding nations, which has made it easier for immigrants from other Central American nations to travel through Guatemala and then through Mexico. So that's something that we will be watching over the next few days and weeks. Steph Kite, reporter for Axios, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Well, I'm the first Mexican heavyweight champion of the world, and we just made history, baby. And you know what? This is not going to be the only victory that I get. I'm not going to let these belts go. Mom, I love you, and our lives is going to change. We don't have to struggle no more. Thanks to God. Joining us now is Jason Gay, sports columnist for the Wall Street Journal. We have a newly crowned heavyweight champion of the world in boxing. His name is Andy Ruiz Jr., and he won in a huge upset against Anthony Joshua over the weekend. You got a chance to speak to Andy Ruiz. He has such a great story. He seems like such a nice guy. He was on Jimmy Kimmel. Tell us a little bit about Andy Ruiz and then and your conversation and everything we need to know. I think the biggest thing about Andy you touched on, he just seems like a nice guy. He seems like a regular guy. And the fact of the matter is, is though he was an accomplished boxer before this fight, the vast, vast majority of people had no idea who he was. Right. 
I know now, of course, after the way that he defeated Joshua, this was not just some sort of fluke. He just dominated a previously undefeated heavyweight in Joshua, a heavily hyped fighter people thought was going to do great things. And so Ruiz just put himself on the map in an instant. The crazy thing is, you know, Anthony Joshua, he's a, a British boxer, huge there, legions of fans. And everybody thought this was just kind of a fight in passing. Ruiz stepped in at a month's notice after another boxer failed some drug tests. Joshua even said maybe he he wasn't giving him enough credit or approaching the fight the right way. Talk about the match. Andy Ruiz got dropped in the third round, and he had this moment where he's like, this is not going to happen. And then he knocked Joshua down like four times after that. He did. He knocked him down twice in the same round that he himself got knocked down in first. I think Ruiz was stunned by the fact that he hit the canvas. That had never happened in his career. Right. And the fact that he was able to sort of regain his composure, go right back at Joshua, really sort of speaks to what he is as a fighter. And I think the big thing people take away from a look at Andy Ruiz is they judge the book by the cover. Andy Ruiz is not a guy who is, let's say, cut like a modern athlete. <laughs> right. He does not look like somebody like Anthony Joshua. He didn't look like, yeah, exactly. abdominals, okay? But he showed himself to be a enormously gifted tactical fighter with quick hands and stamina. And Joshua, who does look like a Greek god, was the guy who was revealed to not really have the stamina. Yeah. Certainly not after he had to hit the canvas a few times. So that was a great shock. And I think for a lot of people, a, a pleasant surprise because we're so accustomed to these fights kind of being bag jobs, right? I don't mean that they're fixed, but I mean the fact that, like, champions, they fight fights a lot of times because they know it'll pad their record. They know they can exactly. get an easy win. And the fact that that just did not happen here, I think, is part of the pleasure of it. And that's part of why, I mean, this upended the whole boxing industry uh, just this past weekend yeah. for, that, for that same thing. This was that type of fight for Anthony Joshua, and Andy Reese came out of nowhere just to beat him down that way. He was an 11-1 to underdog. A lot of people yeah. say it's the biggest upset since Buster Douglas beat Tyson, and yeah. he's the first Mexican yeah. heavyweight champion. They've already said that there's going to be a rematch. Contractually, yeah. Anthony Joshua had that. He can uh, trigger a rematch. He's going to do it. And that's going to be the, the next big mega fight that nobody saw coming. Tell us about your conversation with him because he's such a nice guy. Even in his post-fight press conference, you know, he looks over to his mom and he tells his mom, Mom, we don't have to struggle anymore. We're changing our lives forever. Tell us about the conversation you had. I think Andy's still waking up in the morning and pinching himself to yeah. make sure that he's not in a dream. He said he literally has done that a bunch of times since it's happening, turning to people in his entourage and saying, did we actually do this? Did we really <laughs> shock the world? I'm not dreaming about this, am I? Yeah. I mean, it really is a life-changing thing. Think about it. This guy was expected to collect a polite paycheck, lose with dignity to Anthony Joshua, and then go on his merry way fighting in smaller arenas for the rest of his career. It, and it probably wouldn't be a terribly long one. Now he is heavyweight champion of the world. He's got a whole different look on the future. The money is going to be bigger. He has options. There's talk about this rematch. You know, Ruiz has a voice in this now. Joshua would like to do the fight in the UK. Ah, Ruiz is the existing heavyweight champion. He might want to have it closer to home. Right. So his whole life has been transformed. And, and you get the feeling in talking to him that he's just starting to realize that now. And this can be... Also negative, frankly, you know, 
He's going to get recognized everywhere he goes. He's going to get a lot of demands on his time. Mm-hmm. There's going to be great financial incentives here. But, you know, I think there'll be part of him that misses his old life. With all of the stuff that's been going on in boxing for so many years, I mean, yeah. the enthusiasm has gone up and down. It's, you know, been waning for a lot of time. I just think this is a great story for boxing and Andy specifically. It's a wonderful story. When you have somebody come out of nowhere like this, and again, I know the boxing community, people knew who he was and they had a good opinion of him and they're not terribly shocked that Joshua who there were questions about going into this didn't have the greatest night against him you don't know going into something like this what the guy is going to be like as soon as the microphones get put in front of him and Ruiz is just humble he's adorable shy side to him made references to being bullied as a kid about body image issues and things like that these are intensely relatable things, yes. right? We're in an era where athletes are ter- very, very robotic and they have personal trainers and chefs and nutritionists and people at their back end. And like, this guy just looks like any other guy. And I think that's going to be an enormous part of his appeal. If I were him, I would avoid the chiseled abdominals. <laughs> I think a huge part of what people about Andy Ruiz is that he looks like everybody else. Jason Gay, sports columnist for the Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much. Have a great one. Bye-bye. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The Daily Dive is produced by Miranda Moreno and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive. 